Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at thejazzsession.com, where you'll also find links to follow the show in iTunes or using an RSS reader, and you'll find links to the show's Facebook page, and you can follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash jazzsesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Please buy all their records. Thank you very much. And while you're online, go to twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L, and follow Dave Vrabel, who designed the show's logo and who is very, very funny. There are uh, about two dozen shows left until number 300, and you know what the story is by now. My goal is to get 100 members by the 300th show, and I still need about 60 people to join in order for that to happen, uh, and we are getting perilously close to the deadline now. So it is really time for you to step up. If you like this show, many of you, as I always say, many of you have emailed me and retweeted my messages and sent me all kinds of nice notes, but very few of those people have actually become members of the show, and it's it's really time to do that in order for this thing to keep going. Uh, I think it's worth supporting because I think it's worth documenting this music and, and keeping uh, these stories alive. And if you agree, then I do hope you'll become a member at thejazzsession.com slash join. It's super easy. It's super cheap. And uh, it really it means the world when you do it. So uh, please do become a member at thejazzsession.com slash join. My guest today is making his second appearance on the Jazz Session. It's guitarist Julian Lodge, and he has a new album called Gladwell, which, as you'll hear in the interview, uh, is not referring to Malcolm, but is uh, rather referring to an imaginary place uh, that he has created. And uh, it's a little musical uh, tour through it. And we'll hear now the opening track from the album. My guest is guitarist Julian Lodge. Welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you so much, man. Great to be here. I grew up listening to a lot of concept records, mm-hmm. and in, <laughs> in jazz, you don't get a lot of those. I guess not. <coughs> Excuse me. All of a sudden, I'm coughing. Uh, and I, I really enjoy the, the concept of this because it's a little less kind of programmatic mm-hmm. than a lot of concept records. Sure, sure, sure. But it still manages to create a world for yeah. people to navigate through. And so can you talk a little bit about Gladwell and the, the yeah, idea Yeah, absolutely. It? Well, I, I think you nailed it. I think the intention of the record was to kind of um, create a, a sonic landscape, so to speak, or a, some sort of display of this language that's been brewing within the band for the last few years and a vocabulary and to really just live in it for, you know, 65 minutes. And, and, What's interesting, we recorded the whole record in a day and a half, but we were so clear on which isn't a lot for us. You know, we're used to longer sessions. But we went in with such a clear idea of what the storyline was, which is basically this imaginary town called Gladwell. And uh, it's something I made up a few years ago. And essentially, Gladwell is just a tiny town square, and it's a long forgotten place. Could be hundreds, could be thousands of years ago. No one really knows. 
But I always thought it'd be cool if, you know, I thought, what if your musical responsibility was to describe this place, you know? And uh, no one had heard anything about it until they hear, hear your music. So it gave, gave us kind of a through line. And um, that was the benefit of having a concept like record, was that there was a clear thing we could all kind of come around and put our energies towards. And, uh, and yeah, that's kind of how it came together. And how much, uh, how specifically did you depict the world, mm. you and the other musicians, in terms of, you know, you can imagine everything from sketching it or describing it or right, 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 you know, right. taking a little imaginary walks or whatever it might be. Yeah, Can you yeah, talk yeah. about how you created the environment? The, yeah, the absolutely. Absolutely. We, it started with um, drawing it out. You know, I remember being at my desk in Boston when I was living there, drawing page after page of different ways the town could be set up. You know, and, ah, that, I don't think that that would be there. I think this takes up too much real estate. You know, I was very literal about it until I basically came up with a, a pretty symmetrical setup, you know, and I drew out this map. Um, some of the key features, there's a gatekeeper at the front. It's kind of like you have to enter this place to get past this big dude who protects. <laughs> uh, there's like where people live. There's where people, you know, shop. And there's the sacred center of the town. Could be the church. It could be whatever. Um, there's nature. There's a forest. You know, there's where the villain lives. There's like, that's pretty, that kind of sums up the generalities of the town. And so at the recording studio, we had a big uh, whiteboard, and we drew this out. You know, we'd look at the board at any given moment and go, where are we? You know, and then get whatever we had just played would dictate where we were now. You know, maybe we just experienced the gatekeeper. So we'd go, man, now we're where people live. Let's play that song. So it informed every bit of the process um, down to, you know, what we should record right now, you know. And, and it was, that's so, it was very visual, very visual. And having a band of people that you're close to and mm. who have some shared musical experience and Absolutely. some trust sounds like it really was necessary it's for this essential. project. Well, it's, and honestly, that was that's the band. You know, this is a band where I feel like we're all able to do stuff that we don't typically get to do, you know, and we get to kind of throw it up against the wall, see what sticks mentality and say, well, what if we thought about a storyline and... Um, one of the concepts we went into the session with was what are all the ways that 70 minutes can feel like? You know, because a typical record nowadays is between 60 and 70, at least in the jazz realm. So we played with that, you know, improvising for two hours, improvising for an hour, improvising for three hours, just to feel this out. And um, it's through those processes that you really do develop trust and kind of the shared experience as a group. And I think that's what comes across, or that's my hope. said uh, at the beginning that you recorded it in a day and a half, which is short for you. And of course, most jazz musicians will hear that a day and a half is short and think, wow, that's like an entire day longer than I recorded my album. And because right, for right, most right. people, it's like, you know, yeah. we recorded this whole album in an hour and a right, half. Right, right. <laughs> I know. Well, given the, the, the kind of the intention of it, it was what we did. I think we went in and, and the first day we did 
about about five songs in the first two hours, and everything is one or two takes. It's pretty much like a jazz record in that sense. But then the second day was all the overdubbing and kind of the crafting, and then mixing took a lot longer because there's so much nuance in there that was improvised that we weren't aware of at the time that when we mixed it, we wanted to bring certain things out, really craft it as a a healthy sonic experience. Yeah, I want, you've anticipated my next question, which mm. was about, uh, can you talk a little bit more about using the studio as an instrument mm-hmm, and the mm-hmm. idea of crafting after the playing has been finished? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, this band, my band, is, is a pretty, pretty much a live band. You know, that's what we thrive on. We love playing with the intricacies of how you put a set together and the audience interaction and what room you're in and how it all, you know, informs your playing. So going to the studio was a bit... Um, you know, required some conscious decision making. Like, okay, are we going to go in and throw a lot of that out and try to make a studio record, which we have no experience with, or, you know, as a band, or are we going to go in and try to find, you know, do it as a live album? And so those are the two extremes. We kept going back and forth discussing it. Um, but what we found was, I think, a happy medium where we said, well, let's, we had this beautiful room in Boston we recorded in. What if we go in and pretty much perform the record? And, and don't even settle on tempos or arrangements, but just kind of freely play the music, given how we feel that day. And then afterwards, go back and kind of look at it from a producer's standpoint. So we, so we put on the producer hat and go, you know, I think this part is a little long, or maybe we need to go back and do this again. But we actually didn't listen to any of the music until the, before it was too late. We, kind of, we, we, we basically <laughs> threw ourselves off the cliff and said, hey, man, if this is what we sound like, this is what we sound like. Um, so it, it was really kind of at the best of both worlds. Going forward, I think I could see myself going further in both extremes. Doing, uh, doing the record in an hour and a half live shows. And also being a lot more, um, I don't know how to say it, specific about recording techniques and overdubs and edits. And I just fell in love with the whole process by doing this record. So I, I hope to, you know, God willing, go back and do more. Yeah, and it's really only, I don't know about only, but in the jazz world, uh, we seem to have lost the luxury of using the studio as an sure, in most cases, sure, sure, because sure. there aren't big labels powering most of these records. Right, right. So you just don't have those resources. But, I mean, even, you know, even back in what we consider the classic era, a lot of mm-hmm. times the studio was used as an instrument, and you were mm-hmm. there over multiple sessions Absolutely. in the way that almost every other genre yeah. records music. Exactly. Well, so it's logical, because a record isn't the same as live performance. I think... Inherent in the way it's delivered to people, it's coming out either on a, you know, an LP, on a CD, MP3, whatever, and the way you interact with it is often, I don't know, it's almost peripheral to your life, or it's very direct. You have the option of both, you know. Um, I think any record that you sit down and focus on, you're going to get something good out of because it'd be like if you went to see them live. You know, well-intended musicians usually will put out well-intended music. But a great record is something that can be peripheral and kind of fit into your life and grab your attention and support you throughout the day. And uh, I think the pop folks have figured that out, and rock too, and and jazz too. But it's you're right; it is a little bit rare to to hear people discuss it in jazz. Yeah. I mean, I have a ton of CDs, but only because of what I do. If I didn't do what I did, everything I have would be digital. Mm, yeah. Um, and I think more and more we hear people talking about the you know, the death of the album, which right, right, I'm not really right. sure I believe. Right. But in any case, people moving away from mm. the album. Mm-hmm. This is definitely an album that's intended to be a, a unified yeah. project. Yeah. How do you... How you how do you feel about that? How, how are you do, negotiating it? You know, yeah, being yeah. The, the modern era. Yeah, well, it's a good question. It, it, it's a, it's you know, there's a change, I suppose. I mean, I didn't grow up in the era of the album, really. You know, I, all right, when people talk about, it, then you think of these. You know, I, I grew up with a lot of songs. There was a few albums, like maybe three or so albums that I remember really listening to over and over and over again. Um, and I'm with you. I, I don't totally agree that the album is dead. I think, I I, I think it's. 
I don't know how to say it. I mean, it, it really depends on the musical message you're trying to deliver. You know, if there's something that you do that can be that can come across in one song and kind of represent everything you do, then I think it's okay to shoot for that one song and craft it, and then put a record to kind of support it and cushion that song. I think if you, as a composer, hear a lot of styles and a lot of things you want to do, it's going to take a little longer to let that unfold. You know, at least as a record, and you should have. 10 tracks worth or 12 tracks or 15 or whatever it takes so it, it, it all depends on the story you have to tell and if you have a great long-form story then I think people will listen you know it's it's um it's like the TED talks you know the technology entertainment design these talks are 20 minutes and they're online and you know typically I wouldn't sit down to listen to someone speaking for 20 minutes just because you know or just you know because I think well I really have to like what they're talking about to want to stop for even 20 minutes which isn't long but so much of it is so captivating that you could easily hear another, you know, 40 minutes, another right. hour. So it, it's all about content. And if it speaks to you, I think you'll you'll take the time. And I guess uh, uh, parallel to that is mm. the idea that many people will hear this music without the benefit of the liner notes, sure. for example. Uh, oh, yeah. And absolutely. without the benefit of the story. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Well, that was a, that we were aware of that as we were putting it together. And, um, um you know, to be honest, we went in as a band a couple other times into the studio over the last year. And a lot of this material was part of our, you know, repertoire and we would, we recorded it very much like a like um, you know, trying to just get a good take of each, you know, and we'd check the metronome markings and say, "Okay, are we on tempo is it, you know." And we basically tried to get a perfect take. And I lived with these demos for a while and they rubbed me so funny. They had such a weird feeling. And I thought, well, why? Because all the music is there. This could eventually turn into an album. You know, and exactly what you're saying, you know, we'll put the storyline to it. It'll make sense. But it wasn't until the band kind of started almost saying, well, let's not worry about the audience. Let's just live in the story very genuinely. It wasn't until we started thinking that way that I feel it came across that much stronger. And... Um, because we believed in it, I don't think you, as a listener, you have to. I think you can take it for what it is, and if it moves you, wonderful. And if it doesn't, that's totally okay. You know, we have no judgment of our audience. Whatever <laughs> you feel is cool, really. Um, but I can say very honestly that for me, as a musical experience, to go through the process of making this record was very moving and it was very enjoyable, and it was very, um, it was very much a release for me. There was a lot of stuff that came up while we were playing that I thought. I'm so grateful that I could be in this band right now, you know? And I think if you press record during moments like that, some of that's going to come through and hopefully uh, invite the listener to think, maybe there's something more to this, you know, than just songs. And But yeah, I, I have no bias. Whatever people want to think about it, it's fine, <laughs> <laughs> obviously. Uh, will you mention who's in your band? Of course. Uh, Dan Blake is our saxophonist. Um, our cellist is from Venezuela, Aristides Rivas. Our bassist originally from Peru, uh, Jorge Roder, and Tupac Montilla, our drummer and percussionist from Colombia. Thank you. 
Yeah, and Tupac really adds a lot of interesting texture to yeah. this record, in addition to just his his playing. Yeah. He also has a, a really good ear for other elements and layers yeah, that benefit yeah, the record. Yeah. Well, we, we study this a lot. You know, with a band like we have, with at the moment it's kind of electric and acoustic guitar, cello, sax, bass, and percussion, You have you run into a lot of issues that you wouldn't typically run into with, let's say, you know, trap set drummer, bass, piano, sax, and guitar or something. Um, and what those are, there's a lot of clashes of frequencies. You know, we've learned, for example, that if there's too much cymbal, it cuts out the attack of cello and the high end of the guitar. And if the bass is too boomy, it gets muddled with the sound of djembe, you know, if, we, if he's hitting that really hard. And, and if the saxophone is too loud, it drowns out the guitar. If the guitar is too loud, the, the saxophone sounds too boomy. I mean, there's so many combinations we, we talk about as a band. So what Tupac does is he's, he, he's essential to the group in the sense that he knows how to enhance things that are happening or, you know, basically direct your attention towards what we want you to listen for. So if there's a guitar solo, for example, it breaks down a trio, he'll know that if he goes to frame drums and bass cajon and cajon, you're going to hear the high end of the guitar and he'll speak. Then once the cello and sax come in to support the solo, he'll move to a whole different set of instruments. And it's it's almost his way of sonically bolstering the events that are taking place. And yeah, so it, it's really fascinating. Not to say traps and drummers don't do that as well, but there's a little bit more of a static thing with ride cymbal and hi-hat and snare and bass drum. Um, Tupac never plays the same thing once. <laughs> and, uh, but but, it, but it's, 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 God, it's taught us so much about how this all works. Yeah, it sounds like it must be pretty fascinating for all the members of the band yeah. learning to navigate this territory. Oh, man, it, it's a band that's kind of a weirdo band, as I think of it in... Uh, in the sense that we don't really have, we've never really been able to sit down and play songs, you know? Uh, we've never been able to play jazz standards, we've never been able to play folk standards because it's such, not because we couldn't, but because the music each one of us grew up with is somewhat similar, but also very different, you know? Uh, Reese City's coming from a classical background. He has this, you know, we can relate to him from the classical point of view, but he, we've kind of invited him into the improvisational point of view so um increasingly our number one source of kind of you know the one thing we can all agree on in a way is improvisation and collective improvisation so in doing that yeah we stumble upon the coolest stuff you know and and stuff that i never thought i would be getting into and south american rhythms that are just kind of natural second nature to the guys in the band from south america that are i'm learning about and then they're coming into the bluegrass scene and realizing that they're they're pretty similar and uh, yeah it's it's a it's a process band if I've ever been a part of one. And it sounds to hear you describe it like it's an explicit process band. Like yeah. you guys actually spend time talking about the. Oh, things. absolutely. Yeah, we, we don't take it for granted that it's rare to have be with your friends and be allowed to have the stage to um, to really try stuff out. So absolutely. I talked with uh, Anthony Wilson a couple weeks ago, mm. and he mentioned the uh, Four Guitar yeah. project that you were a part of. Uh, mm. Can you comment a little about that experience? Yeah, absolutely. Anthony is a, a total genius and uh, someone I, I really admired growing up. I mean, obviously, even more now that I know him as a friend. <laughs> but when it was just this, you know, when I didn't know him, I, 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 I remember hearing records like Goat Hill Junket and all these other projects he's doing and work with Diana and Diana Crawl. Um, and I just was so, so, always such a fan of his um, kind of overall musicianship. You know, here was a guitar player, a band leader, an improviser, a composer, an arranger, kind of everything I aspire to be. And uh, so we became friends over the years, just, you know, guitar, we have the guitar in common, we would talk and, and hang out at different points. But then he was, I, I, I reckon he was commissioned to write this piece. And what it was, was... Um, it was the Four Seasons piece for the Four Seasons Guitars, built by John Monteleone, who's one of the master um, jazz guitar builders. Guitar builders, mandolin builder, everything. Um, and so there was this big exposition happening at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and they were gonna, they wanted to do a show that featured Monteleone's Four Seasons Guitars. And uh, I, as I understand it, these guitars were kind of built to be played together. You take them as a set, which is very rare for guitars. You know, it's... Often you'll see a great guitar, you know, being built, but to see four that all have different qualities that kind of add up to this, you know, orchestra, so rare, so rare. So rightfully, Anthony was asked to, to do this piece, and um, 
I was very lucky to be a part of it, one of the guitarists. Um, additionally, it was Steve Cardness, who's brilliant, Chico Pinero, who's totally brilliant, and Anthony, who I adore. And uh, yeah, we performed this suite of music on these instruments for a live audience and for a recording that hopefully will be out at some point. And uh, it was it was phenomenal. I'd never been a part of such a cool through composed piece, you know, where pretty much everything is written. Um, that was nice for me. That was nice to settle in and really get good at parts and phrasing. And I don't know if it really calmed calmed me down, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I'm so used to like, what's it gonna be tonight, you know? And uh, that gave me a lot of job security for about three days. <laughs> 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 Take what you can get, I guess. Take what you can get, yeah. <laughs> One thing that um, that Anthony talked about and that, that you mentioned, uh, too, in the notes of this record is how much different music you can find depending on the actual instrument, physical instrument that you're oh, playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, Anthony is absolutely correct. I mean, uh, I remember having a teacher, or I have a teacher, and one of one of their... Their words of wisdom for me is that, you know, your environment is your guru. Your environment is your guru. And kind of meaning that everything you need at any given moment is in the walls or in the ground or in the air. You know, it's just about letting yourself be kind of spoken to and, and really listening and going, okay, this is where I am. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm on an airplane going to the, you know, going to Europe. This is my reality. This is all that exists. Can I be comfortable? Um, so that mentality it applies equally to guitars or any instrument where you pick up a guitar and as much as you'd like to bring your stuff and your bag to the instrument, you pick it up and you go, this is my guru. This is all that exists, you know, and okay, this guitar has a beautiful low end. I, I should play in the low end, you know, and you, I've learned to take cues from the instruments. And um, now I have a lot of experience with vintage instruments more than new instruments, but uh, I can speak from the vintage world, you really find diversity of character. You know, you pick up two Martins from the same year, and they, they ask for completely different styles of playing. Um, and on this record, you're right, I, I mention it because I use I use about three guitars. I use an old, uh, for guitar nerds like myself, I'd, I'd say it's, it's a 1926 Martin 0028, beautiful small body. Martin, uh, a 1932 Gibson L5, which was kind of the the birth of the archtop, a design that was started by Lloyd Lohr at the Gibson factory, and a Linda Manzer archtop, which is electric and acoustic, and um, the three of them really call upon different, they necessitate very different styles in my own playing, and it's exactly why I employed them. <laughs> <laughs> so behind you here, I see yeah. we have a, a little stack. What's, uh, what's yeah, against the wall here? Let's see, I have I have the Manzer right here. I have the 32 Gibson. Uh, this is the 260028. Over here is really a beautiful guitar. It's a R.A. Mango. Mango was a builder in the, I imagine, the 20s and 30s, uh, who was an Italian luthier living in New York. And um, so around the era of D'Angelico. But it's a flat-top acoustic, and it's a very... It's just a freak of nature guitar, extremely long scale, beautiful, but very quiet, um, very intimate guitar. And that's that's on loan. That's a friend of mine's. And then I have flight cases for some of them. And <laughs> I, I have too much, too much, too much stuff. <laughs> is this like the uh, the N plus one rule where how many guitars you're supposed to have where N is the current number? Where N is right? <laughs> Pretty much. Right. I'm on the search. I'm I'm looking for a dreadnought. So if you, uh, this goes out to everyone listening. I'm looking for a. I've been playing a lot of pre-war Martins, which are obviously kind of the the coveted ones. You know, late 30s or anything in the 30s is beautiful. Why Why are they coveted for those of us who aren't uh, yeah, guitar well, specialists? Well, the, you know, the golden year for a lot a lot of people will say is 1937 for a D18 and. Or 1934 for a D28, and it depends. I'm speaking pretty general. Um, these guitars were very simple. You know, a flat-top acoustic guitar is pretty much what you think of when you look up, you know, when you think of guitar. <laughs> it's got a hole in the middle, all the sides are flat, and they're, they're pretty basic. But there was something about this period where they, the way they designed the bracing, basically what structurally kept the guitar in one piece, was just sturdy enough to keep the guitar alive for the next, you know, 80 years later, whatever. But it also was just light enough that the sides and the back and the top resonate, you know, at this incredible rate, you know. So they found this perfect balance. Now, as time progressed, you go into the 40s and World War II and all this stuff, 
they had this concern of making guitars last longer. They, they wanted you, if you're going to spend your money, you should get something that's sturdy. So they beefed up a lot of components, which definitely made them sturdy, but took away from the resonance factor. Um, so, yeah, that era is pretty coveted. And you pay for it. That's the hard thing about it, is most working jazz musicians won't be able to afford them. But um, there's a lot of very generous people who will loan you a guitar or let you use it for a record. And, and I've been blessed to have people like that in my life. So, yeah. Forgive me if this is a dumb question, but no. why is it why is it not possible just to build now a guitar using the exact same methodology that they used? No, back that's then? that's not a stupid. That's that's that is the question. That's what we're all wondering. <laughs> um, well, there's a few factors as far as I understand it. One being that the, a lot of the wood isn't available. You know, Brazilian rosewood has it's not around like it used to be. And back in the day, they would make all the guitars with Brazilian rosewood, which is very like a, what they would call tone wood. Like sounds great. Um, also, there's an aging factor, you know, even the best new guitars are new, you know, and there's new lacquer, and there's new this, new glue, and it, um, I, re I remember I played a guitar from the 1700s about a year ago, and what was so fascinating about it is the kind of glue they use is, I, I'm, I'm guessing it's hide glue, what they would use for leather, and what happens with hide glue over time, this is so nerdy, I can't believe I'm talking about this, or I get to talk about this, is that the glue crystallizes, and it takes on a comp it's basically a compound that's stronger than anything, but it's extremely light. So I played this guitar from the 1700s that was like air, but it was so sturdy, and you're not going to get that from new chemicals. You're just not. You know, they're almost, they've overthought it. Uh, so they try to use raw, they make these replicas, and they're, they're, they're pretty close. But, you know, it's like an old Porsche versus a new Porsche. Right. You know, there's a vibe that you can't, you cannot replicate. Right. Yeah. So we just had another Lodge-ism. As I, uh, I, I listened back to the last time you were on the show, just as I was getting ready for this one, and the last time you were on the show, you said, as if, as if you had said, I just ate a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you said, well, when I was 12, I played on the Grammys, and then And so and I, at that point, I stopped you and said, yeah, maybe you could talk about that. So now I have to stop you and ask... Why, how did you play a guitar from the 1700s? Well, I have very good friends who are, are very kind to me. They let me play these. Um, in California, I grew, up, I grew up in Santa Rosa, which is Sonoma County, like wine country. But just a little bit south, I was actually born in Tiburon, California, which is right on the border of basically Marin County in San Francisco. Beautiful place. And of all places in the world, there is one of the best vintage and new acoustic guitar shops. Eric Schoenberg's guitars. And uh, from a young age, he was always very kind to me. He'd let me come and play these instruments. And uh, it was there that I, I've played some of the best guitars ever that I've been exposed to, including this guitar. I remember going up one day and a friend of mine, Steve, was our friend. And yeah, he said, oh, check out my guitar. Open. I mean, we're just outside. There's cars driving by. And I pick it up. And oh, yeah, it's from the 1700s. And I, <laughs> okay, it's... <laughs> You have, at that at moments like that, you have to pretend like that doesn't phase you. Like, oh, only only the so okay, right. whatever. 
Let's see how it sounds. Right. Yeah, you should see the stone guitar back at my exactly. apartment. Yeah. It's no big deal. It's crazy, man. It's you get you get weirdly immune, and 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 uh, you know these guitars are so so expensive, and because they're. It's the land of you know. Oh, it's only a hundred thousand. Really, is this is, is something wrong with it? <laughs> so uh, you know, it's fun. It's funny. Now, I've learned to just you know take none of it too seriously because you can easily get into the the minutia of guitar nerdum, and I, I I say just right 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 enough in it to to enjoy it, but not too much to drive me crazy. Sure. So for one of the pieces on here uh, in which you use a vintage guitar, yeah. you're also. Uh, you also formed the piece just through complete improvisation, right? Right, 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 right. This was kind of something I, I... Personally, that's my favorite stuff on the record because as a guitar player, I... What, what I did to explain a little bit is I, um, I was working with a dear friend of mine, Debbie Adams, who's an Alexander Technique teacher. And tell and, us what that is. Yeah, it, well, in a nutshell, Alexander Technique is kind of a study. It's a study, really, of... Um, how you can move as freely and uh, coordinatedly, I guess, as possible. It's basically um, you learn how to use yourself and behave in, in, in such a way that um, basically works with the design of your body and um, in your thought process. It sounds really ambiguous, and it's one of these things that's difficult to, to speak about. But This is as it relates to playing the guitar or to just or life anything. in general? Yeah, it was... It, it was I mean, it's very popular with dancers, actors, musicians, anyone who needs to kind of be present when they're doing what they're doing. Sure. What, if you study the Alexander Technique, you learn how to essentially stop interfering with the, you know, your reflexes, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. You know, guitar players will typically go into this kind of guitaristic hunch to play guitar. And though there's nothing wrong with it, and it doesn't mean you should sit upright, um, often you're blocking certain channels of movement that if you don't if you don't release that tension, you'll get hand problems. Right. Which is exactly why I got into the technique to avoid tendonitis and things like that. So anyway, there's something that happens that's very beautiful when you're with an Alexander t- Technique teacher. They'll have one hand on you or two, and they're it's not manipulative at all. It's not a massage, but essentially they're 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 just kind of inviting you with their touch to be easy. You know, and we've all experienced it. If you've ever, let's say, given a hug to someone who you're very close to or, or is dear to you, in that moment of contact, there's kind of a letting go. Like in this space, we're okay, you know, and there's support between two intelligent beings. Um, so we played with that in the studio. What I wanted to do was I said, I, I sat in a chair and Debbie had one hand on my back, not, not manipulative, just one hand. And I had a, a clock set up, and I said, I want to improvise for two minutes, and I'll just improvise a composition. So they're rolling, I go, I improvise a piece, and just kind of, essentially it was a time where I wasn't trying to project music through the microphone to the listener. I was just trying to play the movement I was feeling that was being kind of amped up by the fact that my friend had her hand on my back. And then without listening back, I made a rule. I said, do not let me redo any of this. It has to be first takes because I know my, my mind how it works. And it'll be like, <laughs> you know, it was 70% good. Let me have that one more time. Or I was out of tune. And no, do not. Um, so then we did another take where I improvised on top of that. And basically having a conversation with myself musically. And then a third time going back, having a conversation with myself. All the while kind of being reminded that I'm embodied and I'm sitting in my chair and that's just as important as the outcome. Really, it took me away from worrying about, oh, does it sound good? Is it hip? Did I play that well? And it just kind of reminded me of that little kid nature that I, I'm often pretty fond of where you just play. End of story, you just play. Um, so the result was this beautiful kind of, uh, I don't know, montage of guitar sounds and this composition really does grow out of There's two on here and then there's one that's a bonus track. And... Uh, I purposely didn't play the guitar that I use. This is that old Martin I mentioned. I didn't play it too much beforehand because I wanted it to be a kind of a first encounter. Mm. And I think that comes across... When I hear that, it sounds like a first meeting, both between myself and the guitar and myself and the contact of an Alexander Technique teacher. So it's very, very potent sounding, I'd say.
You mentioned that you're uh, teaching at Berkeley now. Uh, I am. What's that been like? It's been fantastic. I I, I went to Berkeley as a student uh, from about 2006 to 2008, and um, very lucky. I went there, and I actually I went for about a semester, and then said, "Man, I don't know if I can do this anymore." There's so much, so much happening, and so much great information that it's kind of this weird conundrum where you get out of a semester and you go, I don't have any time for myself. You know, like you realize you never wrote a song for your band or you didn't. It's almost like you're still processing all the good stuff. And I thought, well, okay, if I do this, I have to pace myself. That was my mentality. And um, so I spoke to the president, Roger Brown, who's a fantastic person and, and just true lover of music. And I said, okay, how are we gonna? How are we gonna? I want to stay at Berkeley. I want to be here, but I'm I'm a bit overloaded. And he said, well, what do you want to study? I said, well, honestly, I, I have this two year chunk where I just got off the road with Gary Burton. In a couple years, uh, I'll, I want to make a record. Is there any way I could study, you know, classical composition, piano, study with Mick Goodrick, uh, basically, you know, do all the stuff that's going to help me go forward with my career? Because I think I have a clear idea of what that requires at least from my perspective and they were great they said of course you know if you, if you want to study that we'll make a program where you it's geared towards what you want and i did that and graduated my sounding point my first record was was my final you know that's what i had to do to graduate and uh so after all this experience happened and this left on good terms i uh i went back to berkeley and i said you know i'm about to move to new york before I do, if there's any way I can be involved on an educational level, I would be thrilled and it would be such a priority in my life. And, and they were really gracious about it and said, absolutely, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'm traveling a lot, so I can't be here all the time. But we discussed the concept of what if we did like a young musicians forum where basically they called it the anti-jam session jam session, which I love. <laughs> Which is basically to create an environment that's extremely inclusive, where you not only play together, but you you allow education to be born out of your mistakes, which I think is how it works best. You know, if if you, we all, you know, as musicians spend time in our bedrooms trying stuff out, and maybe we come out with something good, but a lot of times we go, well, that's great, but I have to go beyond. I have to play well. I have to be perfect, you know, and, and there's some validity to that desire. But I we I said you know let's 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 make a place where we basically study improvisation as a group with bluegrass musicians, jazz musicians, film composers, uh, music production people, everybody, songwriters, and then take the results of that and study how we can compose music that's so-called official, you know, or you know, composed, written them down. Let's just basically study our own processes and then make something tangible, like a small recording or a YouTube video. And it's exactly what we did. You know, it's, uh, we're in the final portion of the semester at the moment, and we're about to make a recording. And it, it's been incredible because I, I don't think I'm, I'm a teacher, teacher, teacher in the sense where I'm going to come in and tell people what to do or teach them a methodology. But I do believe I am comfortable with uh, connecting people. And saying, you know, I think this bluegrass mandolin player should know this jazz guitar player. And I think if they combine their strengths, they're going to produce something beautiful. And uh, so it's it's been very, very enjoyable. And will it continue? It will in the fall. We're doing it. We're, we're launching it as an official prototype course. It'll be uh, Improvisation and Composition Collective. So for someone who uh, has spent significant portions of his life trying to figure out how not to be loaded down, you've added a regular commute to Boston. <laughs> right. <laughs> I know, man. That's, 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 uh, it's something I, I, I struggle with because it's, I rarely take time to just calm down and just be, just to breathe. <laughs> and, uh, and going to Berkeley, you know, I jumped on the prospect and then I realized, okay, this actually does take a toll and you have to be healthy and, and eat well and sleep when you can. And, uh, but it's so fulfilling to see the stuff that comes out of this class that I feel in a lot of ways rejuvenated. You know, Boston now is my, my haven that I go to kind of relax in and also see what's happening. I feel like I'm I have the luxury, very much like Gary Burton did for all those years, I, I, 
I can see the scene. I can see the next generation brewing. You know, the people are just a couple years younger than me, but I'm like, my God, when they put together a band or when they make a record, this is going to be the thing, you know? So I, I'm very lucky, very lucky. So my uh, my final question to, to folks is always uh, asking you to recommend something that you've read or seen or mm. heard, not directly connected to your work, but that you'd like to share with other people. Wow, what a good question. Read, seen, or heard. Um, Trent, that's not related to music, right? Uh, it could be related to music, but not something you're directly involved in. Involved in. I'm yes. my record. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, uh, I'm trying to think. It's such a good question. I feel surprisingly out of touch after just saying that I'm so in touch with the scene. <laughs> um I mean, I feel, I've, I've been reading, I've been really getting into Marquez lately. Mm. Hundred Years of Solitude is the book I'm working on now. And and who's, Marquez is an incredible author, right? And uh, and kind of a big, big proponent or player in this, this world of magical realism, which is his style of literature. And anywho, I feel when I read his work that I see kind of a, a partner in what I'm doing, I'm trying to go for on the musical front, which is this magical realism. Um, and so in a literary way, he has a way of, of kind of sucking you into this world where you're, you believe anything he says, and then it's almost like a dream where at the time it makes so much sense, and then you wake up or you step away from it and you go, how did my mind come <laughs> up with that? <laughs> So I guess when I was younger, I used to try to make as much, and I still do this. I mean, I try to make sense of everything, to put a label on it and be like, this is this, this is defined. And through reading books like that in that realm, I'm kind of reminded that it's okay to live in the realm of, I don't know, you know, you don't have, you can withhold definition. And uh, so that's been a big inspiration for me. Um, I'm probably, I'm definitely a latecomer. I think most people know about this stuff and I'm just new to it, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I've been taking a lot of walks lately, so I recommend people take walks cause it's becoming beautiful outside and yeah. that's, that's kind of as good as it gets. Yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. My guest is Julian Lodge. The new album is called Gladwell and it's a pleasure to talk to you again. Yeah, Thanks for thank coming on the so show. Thank you so much, man. Pleasure. Pleasure. music from julian lodge and his new album gladwell my thanks to julian for coming back to the show and please do go see him as he tours around the country 
I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of this show is available for free, as I keep saying, at thejazzsession.com. Whether or not you become a member, you get the shows for free. But if you don't become a member, then pretty soon there will be no shows to get. So uh, please do become a member at thejazzsession.com slash join. And now, if you would, get out there and support real live human beings making real live music whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.